Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 241 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with our own Stephanie Everett about our brand new book, The Small Firm Roadmap. Today's podcast is brought to you by Text Expander, Ruby Receptionists, and Podium. We wouldn't be able to do the show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So we could have a long chit chat around <laughs> how excited we are that our book launched on Tuesday and that it's live in the world and that everyone should go buy it. Like you can literally go buy it right now on Amazon. But since that's what you and Stephanie are going to talk about for the next 30 minutes, yeah, we probably don't need to belabor the point. I mean, if you already have it in your hands and you're like deep into it, then I guess you're good to go. Go read. But if you want a little bit more information about the book and you want to hear more about our thoughts on it, just keep on listening because we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Derek Miller from iProTech and then my conversation with Stephanie where we talk about why we wrote the book, what we're trying to do with it, and a little bit about what the roadmap is. And hey, if you do have the book, book yeah. and you love it, leave a review on Amazon so other people can find it. Yes, please. That's really helpful to us. Thanks so much. Here we go. Hi, I'm Derek Miller. I'm the Vice President of Desktop Solutions for iProtech. Hi, Derek. Welcome back to the podcast. So what's a tool that you think should be in every litigator's toolbox? I think one of the major tools that uh, can help, it might be a little underrated, is a fact management tool. What is a fact management tool? A fact management tool would be a tool that kind of bridges the gap between the discovery slash production phase of litigation and when you go to trial. And every case, obviously, you should be preparing as though you're going to go to trial, even if you don't end up in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining that a fact management tool kind of uses key facts, material facts, extraneous facts, whatever, as the central organizing principle. And my assumption is that it helps me organize what those facts are and identify why they might matter and helps me draw connections between them. Yeah, I think one way to think about, you know, a fact management tool is it's like one of those uh, photographic mosaics mm-hmm. where you're trying to take a bunch of little individual pictures and turning it into one big picture. Hmm. And with litigation, you kind of start with that big picture in mind. And then with all the little pictures that you're given, you try and paint it so that it's accurate and clearly seen. Sometimes that's harder to do because, you know, you're stuck with all these little pieces of evidence and you've got to align those with the facts and issues in the case. And a fact management tool can kind of help you do that. I think, you know, you got to have the ability to manage a witness and the documents and the testimony that are going to be used. And then in every case, there's a chronology and being able to visualize what happened when is a key part of painting that picture. So you just mentioned a chronology, but what are some of the other key features that you'd want to look for in a fact management tool? I think the other key features are, first, something that's going to help you manage those facts. So you've got a fact and you're going to have the evidence that goes with it, whether that be a document, an email, a video, a transcript, testimony from a deposition, any of those different things are all key pieces that you'd want to be able to manage. I think additionally, you want a tool that isn't going to be a bridge to nowhere. And what I mean by that is it would be great if all of the effort and work product that you had would transition easily into whatever you're going to use when you go to trial. Mm. Because the idea here is that 
when I see a fact, it's providing me with the additional context so that I know what that fact means, what the significance is, if it turns out to exist or not exist, or if the fact is disproved or proved, what does that mean for my case? And what are the documents I'm going to need to be able to prove it up or disprove it, right? You're right. And then which witness is going to testify about that? Mm-hmm. Who's going to introduce that evidence to help you out? Is this something that would work with my presentation software, or is it something that I just use myself on my laptop at my desk? It could be either or. As I mentioned earlier, ideally, you'd want something that's going to transition that work product right into the trial so that if you do end up in the courtroom, you're not redoing that work. It's all going along for the ride. And that's the philosophy behind iProtect, right? Is like, it's something you start using at the beginning of the case that helps you along the way. And it it also turns into a fact management tool as you need it to be. And it helps you present your case at trial and handles the whole life cycle of the case all the way up to trial, right? Exactly. We're all about simplifying that entire process, you know, from the start of discovery all the way through trial. Very cool. To learn more about what small firms need to know about e-discovery technology and fact management tools and more about iProtech itself, visit iProtech.com. That's iProtech.com and you can find the link in the show notes. Thanks, Derek. Thank you. Hey everyone, I'm Stephanie Everett, a wannabe Texas Hold'em player and a failing dog trainer. (laughs) (laughs) You're not a failing dog trainer, Stephanie. Our new puppy needs work. (laughs) (laughs) She just has a lot to say in our conversations. Yes, she's very vocal and I don't know what to do to make her quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if she pipes in during this podcast, people will now have an idea of why. Yes, but she's very cute. So, you know. Millie von Coco Bean de Floof, Queen of Khmer. Correct. You, yeah. You're like the only one in the world that remembers that. It's awesome. And I love her name. But we just call her Millie. Millie. You are also in, we've given you a couple of different titles, but they all amount to the same thing. You are in charge of Lawyerist Insider and Lawyerist Lab, the community of lawyers that we are teaching and coaching and helping to try and build successful future-oriented law practices. Yeah, that's my day job. Yeah. Which I love <laughs> as much as I love everything else. No, I, I, I think I said this on the last time, like I hit the professional lottery and I get to work with lawyers every day and help them make their lives better. So we're wandering into it, but the reason we are talking today is about the Small Firm Roadmap, the book that we wrote together with Aaron and Marshall Lichty, kind of our new vision for law practice and rewriting the rules of small firm practice. Yeah. Sam, we wrote a book. I know. It's, um, you know, as I've said before, I think I'm reluctant to pat myself on the back, but I am slowly starting to feel like maybe I ought to just allow that to happen because holy shit, we wrote a book. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And every time I read it, I'm like, oh, this is really good. (laughs) This is helpful. (laughs) It is a good book. I admit, like I, I admit, like that feels feels like a weird thing to say. Like, no, it's, it's okay. We can be proud of ourselves, right? I am proud of it. It is a good book, but I guess maybe we should start by explaining to people why we wrote the book. And then we can talk about, okay, so when we talk about what a successful small firm practice ought to look like, let's make sure we're not hiding the ball and actually tell people what we mean by that, which is kind of like, I don't know, this is episode 250 something or 40 something, I think. And so hopefully if people have made it this far in the podcast, they have some of ideas about that, but let's put it all together in in one shot here and make sure people understand what we're getting at. Yeah. So Stephanie, why did we write this book? (laughs) It's a good question. I feel like there's a couple of ways to answer it, right? Like there's kind of the big way because ultimately we are on a mission to change the legal practice as we know it, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, it is time to shake things up people. And if you, like you said, if you haven't heard that this is what we're out to do by now, 
I don't know where you've been, but that we... That begs the want... question, like, why does law practice need changing? Well, one, I think we can all agree it's broken. It hasn't really changed fundamentally for hundreds of years, and yet the world around us has changed. And I think we go into some specifics around that, and we can do that here too. But at its core, why we wrote this book is we want to give people one place to learn what it is that we see happening in the legal industry, and then more importantly, what to do about it. Yeah. And I absolutely think, like, let's talk a little bit about how and why we think we say the word broken and what we mean by that. And I think the flip side of that is also there's a piece of it that isn't exactly broken, but that is failing to take advantage of really obvious opportunities. And maybe that's a kind of brokenness, but it's a little bit different. I like that nuance. And I like that, honestly, when we wrote the book, those nuances kept coming out with the four of us working together. And it's so great because you get those different perspectives all kind of milled in. But yeah, like parts of it are broken and parts of it just aren't optimal and parts of it are okay, but we should always be trying to make it better. For me, one of the things that seems most obviously broken about the practice of law is honestly lawyers themselves, mm -hmm. which I don't mean in an accusatory way, but like, and I've said this before on the podcast, people have seen me, I often get kind of emotional talking about it, but like our profession is at the top or in the top three professions or occupations for suicide, for divorce, for mental health, mental illness, for substance abuse, drinking problems, general unhappiness. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually at the bottom of the charts of good jobs. You know, like our profession is sick and I don't know where else to point the finger then. There's something wrong with the way we have structured law practice. Yeah. And you know, and you, you were so open and honest with sharing this story in the book and we used you as an example Somewhere along the way, we've gotten a little lost, right? Like we think mm -hmm. of ourselves as a profession and not a business, and we can talk about that more. But as a professional, what it has come to mean is this idea of being a martyr for our clients, right? And I think mm -hmm. you shared your story in the book about how people would come to you and you would say, I own your problem now, Yeah, which is amazing. But uh, but think about what that. <laughs> but it's unfortunately true. <laughs> right, but think about what that does to you now. I mean, yeah. yes, you want to ease your client's burden, but not to your own detriment and health. It's kind of like put your you know oxygen mask on first. You weren't taking care of yourself if you're taking on all the burdens of all your clients. That can be unhealthy. And it's at least, it's our hypothesis, although I feel like we're proving it in the work that we're doing. It's our hypothesis, at least, that there are some aspects of just the way we structure our businesses that make it broken like that. The martyrdom thing is totally true. Like, we've come to this idea that, you know, being a lawyer means sacrificing your own happiness and well-being for your clients and your time and your families and your relationships and all those things. And that that's just too far. Like, that's unreasonable. And it doesn't mean sacrificing quality or client service. It just means doing it with a different approach so that you can potentially an even higher quality of client service because you're not depressed and worried about your relationships and things like that. You're actually fulfilling yourself. And so you can fulfill your clients needs even better. Yeah. And you touched on it too, that because legal is, I don't know, I don't know why we, we are afraid to look at what everybody else is doing in other industries, but there are best practices in the business world. Mm -hmm. And maybe because we're professionals, we think we can't look to business, but there are Things that businesses do that also serve the clients better, well, and, and make your life better and easier and all of those things. And so it, there's a lot of things going on here that we felt like, hey, it's time that we really call this out and start changing it. I want to talk about that for a second, because in the book, 
we wrote that like, you know, when Aaron and I were teaching CLEs in 2009, people would get pissed when we dared suggest that business and profession are not mutually exclusive and that law practice is also a business. And I read that and I was like, damn, like I heard that a month ago, (laughs) you know, like a Minnesota Supreme Court justice got up and said, this is not a business, it's a profession. And the bullshit is profound there. That's just not true. And one of the ways in which law practice is broken is that we treat it like it's not a business and we're afraid to engage with that idea. And so we don't do the work. They are businesses. You file it with the secretary of state. It's obviously a business. You have the same kinds of obligations that another business has and your ethical obligations overlap, but don't trump them. And you have to treat it like one, but because lawyers time is the most valuable thing, you know, it makes it easy to justify not working on your business. And so we don't do that work. We don't take the things that we could learn from the business world and apply them to our practices. We always push them onto the back burner. And I think that's another way in which your actual business model is broken because you aren't actually trying to work it and do it. Yeah. And you've said this before, and it's so true. If you look at the heart of the ethical complaints that get filed against lawyers over and over and over again, it all comes back to business problems, right? It stems from communication and billing practices and how we're setting expectations on the front end and then meeting those. That should be the biggest wake-up clue right there to that Supreme Court justice. If you want us to serve our clients and, and actually be the professionals that you expect us to be, then we absolutely have to start and focus on our businesses. I think maybe the last way in which law, I mean, we talk about, we put a lot more nuance and flavor and meat on this in the book, but another way in which I think law is importantly broken is in the sense of access to justice, but not in the way that we seem to think about it. When I talked with Rebecca Sandifer, we talked about there is an access to justice gap in the way that lawyers typically talk about it, which means a gap between the people who can afford legal services and those who actually get them. But what that fails to acknowledge is the even bigger and more important and more pressing access to justice gap between those who have legal problems and actually use lawyers or courts to try and address those problems. And the number of people who actually try to use lawyers or courts to try to address their legal problems when they have them and when that is the place where they ought to address them is a tiny fraction of the whole. And I think that's one of the biggest things that are broken is like lawyers are one of the least popular ways that people solve legal problems. There is a huge product market mismatch (laughs) going on here. We aren't selling something that the market wants in any kind of volume. And that feels like a really fundamentally broken thing about the way we practice law. Yeah, well said. (laughs) Rant over. (laughs) No, it's a good rant. It's one we feels like we have a lot, but we hope that people are starting to catch on that. Hey, listening to your clients, you're going to learn our potential clients are those people who didn't hire you. Uh, It's a wealth of information there. Right. In any other, like if only 17% or 13% or 20%, I can't remember what the number Rebecca Sandifer came up with is. I should probably go re-listen that podcast because... I keep using it and then saying I don't remember the number. But if such a tiny percent of the people who have a problem that we are trying to design a product to solve are interested in it, like that is the kind of thing that would send any company in Silicon Valley back to the drawing board. And it should send us back to the drawing board to rethink how we package and sell and market legal services. And said a different way, you know, we talk in the book about the rise of legal alternatives. Um, Guess what, folks? There's a whole bunch of venture capitalists and innovators out there that are looking at that same number and they see opportunities 
opportunity. Yeah. They're trying to figure out how they break in because they think they can solve this problem faster and, you know, probably cheaper than we can. And I think that doesn't have to be the solution. I think we want to be at the table and be part of the solution. Yeah, you're kind of alluding to Jordan Furlong's, the way he breaks down the the change in the legal market in his book, Law is a Buyer's Market, which we cite in our book. And because it's kind of like, you might as well just go read Jordan's. But the short version is, you know, there are three really important trends that will play an important role in shaping the future of the legal industry. And they are changed consumer expectations. And all you have to do is look at the apps on your phone to get an idea of what we mean by that. The way we do business with the companies we do business with has fundamentally changed over the last 10 years or five years or, you know, I mean, pick your range. But like, since you bought your first smartphone, it has changed profoundly. Yeah. And lawyers who aren't thinking about ways that they can meet those changes are probably going to miss out at some point. The second way is downward pressure on pricing. I mean, like Uber doesn't cost more than a cab. And I'm sick of using Uber as an example, but it's a really easy one that is always on the top of mind, I guess. And so downward pressure on fees is real. And there are some like things related to the Great Recession that relate to that, whatever. And then the third is the rise of lawyer alternatives, which you already alluded to. People can use Google to solve some legal questions. People can use, you know, LegalZoom to generate simple forms. People can use the court's websites to do self-help. There's all kinds of alternatives to lawyers out there. And it doesn't matter if they're better or worse than lawyers. They are still alternatives that people are using. Yeah. We need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we come back. We're going to talk about, okay, so what are the traits of a successful future-oriented law practice in the way that we're trying to urge lawyers to build? We'll be right back. Drip, drip, drip. Hear that? It's your office's online reviews. Kind of slow, huh? Not exactly the gush of praise you were hoping for when you set up your account on that review site. But why? After all, your best clients love you. They say it all the time, just not online. And that's too bad. Because your word may be your bond, but your client's words, well, they're your best sales tool. And these days, a star rating can make the difference between very interested and running for the hills. Podium knows how important reviews are to your law office. That's why they built a great online review platform, making it simpler than ever to get a five-star rating you know you deserve. Businesses see an average 6% increase in revenue from reviews thanks to Podium. More than just a friendly reminder, Podium sends clients straight to the review sites you care about most with built-in analytics to monitor your progress towards meeting your next goal. So you could keep waiting for reviews to drip in, or you could open the floodgates with Podium. Just visit podium.com slash lawyerist to save 10% when you sign up. That's podium.com slash lawyerist to get started and save 10%. Podium, become the number one law office online. Unlock your productivity with Text Expander. Easily insert text snippets in any application from a library of content created by you and your team while reducing errors. You can save so much time, it's like getting an extra employee. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, and iPad, and Chrome. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit TextExpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. There's more to answering a phone call than just pronouncing your name correctly. And I think that's what sets Ruby apart from all the other receptionist services out there. I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of people who work at Ruby, and from top to bottom, it's full of the kind of people you'd love to spend time with. I guess it's something in the coffee they serve. And after all, when someone calls your firm, that means they are going to be spending time with your receptionist. You may think you get to make a first impression when you pick up the phone, but that's not how it works. Maybe your receptionist is just on the call for a minute or two, but that's all it takes to form a first impression. So it's a good idea to make sure your receptionist is the kind of person you'd want your callers to spend time with. It could be the difference between a big case and a big fail. Don't worry, Ruby can handle pronouncing your name right. They'll also help you make a great first impression. And now Ruby can even help you connect with clients right on your website with 24-7 live online chat. You can find out more about Ruby receptionists and how to make a great first impression at callruby.com slash lawyeristpod. 
So we're back, Stephanie. And before we talked about why we wrote the book and some of the ways in which we think the traditional law practice model is broken. So let's not hide the ball here. Let's talk about what are some of the traits of a successful future-oriented law practice. And we identified six of those in the book, the first of which really comes from you and is something you've brought to the table or at least helped us understand the way we'd been talking about it which is intentionality. Law firms need to be built intentionally. And I know at least one member of the lab community said that she didn't really get what you meant until she read the book. So help us understand what you mean and and what we mean by that. Yeah, I mean, I think we talk about this idea of designing and being intentional with our firms. and, And it's kind of a fun topic for me because once you start getting into it, it just permeates everything that you touch, right? Mm -hmm. But it's this idea that we want to be very intentional with how we interact with our clients and the type of experience that we create for our clients. And that starts from the moment they first somehow connect with us, whether that's through our online presence or social media presence, or they call the office all the way through to the end. And it all impacts one another. And so we want to be intentional in in the systems that we create and the processes that we use and how we interact with those clients so that we are creating the experience that ultimately we want to create. And so it it just kind of all starts tying together. So if you want to have more heads down productivity time because you need uninterrupted time to work on your client's file, you build that into your intake process and explain to clients on the front end how to best communicate with you and your firm. And so you kind of just start tying all the pieces together. For sure. I was, I don't know, I feel like I want to tell this story. I've been working on building a fitness habit. And one of the ways in which I've been successful has been in thinking about what I'm going to do tomorrow morning when I roll out of bed at 530, because I won't be competent to think about it then. And my wife and I were laughing the other night because that is a kind of intentionality, right? I'm thinking about what I'm going to do. I'm thinking about how I'm going to do it and how it's going to make me feel to have done it. And then we were laughing about how you're also my fitness coach in addition (laughs) in spirit. Um. I know. I love that. And then you told me that. So to complete the story. So then Sam brags about me the next morning, Stephanie, because of you, I got up and worked out this morning. And I'm like, oh, shit, now I got to go work out. (laughs) So actually, you just brought it right back around. So thanks to you, I have worked out three times this week, which I can't remember the last time I've done. Awesome. Virtual high fives. Yeah. (laughs) It almost sounded the first time you started saying it, it started, you know, setting your intention. It sounds kind of woo woo, but it's so obvious. Like, just think about what are you trying to do and that how is that going to work and how is it going to feel and how is it going to happen? And it just seems so important because so many lawyers just drag themselves from one fire to the next and put them out and put them out. And there's no intentionality. There's no purpose in the way they go about practicing. Well, so, yeah, I agree. It sounds woo woo, but, you know, I just read, oh, man, I'm going to not get the athlete right. But there was an, a famous athlete, a football player. And he said that he never once stepped onto the field, that it was this persona that he occupied mm-hmm. that he, mm-hmm. you know, read, like he took on a different persona when he stepped onto the football field because he was very in- like, so he brought that intention to his play, right? Like, how did he want to show up? And how was he going to act for when he got the ball? And so maybe that helps people, you know, because we see that a lot. And we've probably heard about professional athletes, you know, doing these mental exercises of, of imagining their golf swing or imagining what what it's going to be like when they're in the race. We can do that same thing with our firm in, in the larger sense, but also just think about the next time before you pick up the phone and have a call with a client or with opposing counsel, or maybe the next time you walk into a team member's you know desk, who do you want to be in that moment? How do you want to show up? Mm-hmm. How do you, you know, what do you want to bring to the conversation? How do you want that person to feel 
when you leave the conversation. And it just is that split second of putting some intention around it that will change how your performance for the better. I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but it's related <laughs> here because like I notice when I, I don't practice law day to day anymore, you know, like the only law practice I do is now pro bono work, volunteer work. And so, so I think I have shed some of this that I observe in other lawyers. And so when I sit down and chat with other lawyers, there is an overwhelming sense of, I am not, even though we scheduled this time to be together, they are not here with me in, in full or, or mm. even in most part, right? Like lawyers are so distracted by things that are more important. And that perception that I am not the most important thing or even close to it in this person's hour that they've decided to spend to me is really palpable. And I, I don't think most lawyers realize that they're exuding this kind of distraction. Mm. Um, but lawyers feel distracted and high strung when you sit down with them. And I wonder how that might change if instead there was a moment to reflect on, I want to have this coffee with Stephanie or Sam or, or this judge or this other lawyer or a friend or whatever. And during that coffee, I'm not going to be touching my phone because I, I want to be present for them. I want to be engaged in it. I want to at least display interest <laughs> and I want to take away some things from the conversation that aren't just purely transactional and I want to be there for it. And then I think you'd be more likely to actually do that. I, I do that with my kids when I'm like, you know, I come home and I'm distracted and I'm, and I'm stopping. I'm like, no, I want to enjoy this time with my daughters. So I'm going to put my phone away and I'm going to listen to them. And if they want to do something ridiculous, I'm going to say yes to it. Love it. I think that would change things. Yeah. And imagine how your client, if you gave your clients your undivided attention for that time, mm -hmm and you really heard them, imagine what impact that would have on them. And what would they then leave that and go and say to other people? So intentionality is something from big picture to small picture. Yeah. Number two on our list was being entrepreneurial, that law firms need to have the attitude of being a business that is an entrepreneurial business. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that one? I mean, I guess. I feel like this is something that, because, you know, just get me talking. <laughs> I feel like this is something that has been baked into lawyers' DNA from the very beginning, is the idea that we should approach our businesses our law practices like an entrepreneur where we are trying to take, you know, calculated risks. We are experimenting. We're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work. Those are all some of the things that I think we have to bring to our law practices in part because there are some really clear trends, but there are a lot of different ways to address those trends. And there's only one traditional law practice model, basically. And I think we need lots of lawyers thinking of lots of new ways to meet the needs in order to get out a really good answer. I, I don't have a whole lot more to say about it than that. I just think it, it is so important to have that attitude of being an entrepreneur in your law practice. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we say when people show up for LabCon is there are a lot of places where you hear you can't do that and this isn't one of them. Mm -hmm. And I think just having that attitude of why not, yeah. you know, try. At least take the idea out and look at it. You're right. Like a lot of people come to Lab and LabCon and before LabCon TBD Law because they wanted to join a community of people who wouldn't just shoot down every idea they had and would actually engage with those ideas and be willing to at least consider them before deciding whether or not they were good or bad. Yeah, absolutely. Number three on our list is empathetic. What do we mean by building an empathetic firm? 
Well, I think as part of being a client-centered firm, Mm -hmm. it requires some empathy to understand our clients. Maybe it also goes to understanding our team. Mm -hmm. You know, being a manager is hard. (laughs) Yeah, we're currently dealing with some difficulty on that too and some self-reflection on how we may may be able to do a better job and didn't realize how we're not doing a great job. Yeah, so the idea of that emotional intelligence coming into play and how important empathy can be and how it impacts our business and I, I hope when I was talking to somebody else about the book who had gotten, who's already had a chance to read one of the advanced copies, she also recognized empathy in the writing. And I hope as people read the book, you see that we also want it to bring our own level of empathy mm-hmm. because while we are suggesting that the practice is somewhat broken and that we, that you need to change, I think our message also is, you know, no judgment. Like we understand it. We're not out blaming you. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we just but we need to recognize it and we need to and we need to help you. And we recognize that the path is hard. And so let us help, you know, ease that burden for you. It's interesting for me because this is not something I arrived at in any sort of intuitive natural way, I don't think. Empathy is something I have to actively do. I think I'm pretty good at it when I remember to actually do it, but it's not something that's just sort of innate to me. But I recognize because the proof is all over the place that without empathy, you can't solve problems well. Mm. Um, You have to understand the people who you're trying to solve the problem for, people who you're working with, the people who you want to be your clients, the people sitting in the jury box, the people you're negotiating with. Empathy is like the superpower that makes all of that stuff work better. And So even though it didn't necessarily come natural to me, I recognize that it's just, it has to be a core part of the way you build a firm. Yeah. So powerful. I really enjoy, yeah, it really is. And I, you know, I really enjoy like design thinking and another way of talking about design thinking is empathetic problem solving, which stands in opposition to the way lawyers traditionally solve problems, which is, you know, like we do law school exams, you know, give me the legal problem and I will take it apart and tell you what the answer should be. Yeah. I mean, empathy is maybe my client can't show up at 10 a.m. to meet in my office because that would require them taking off work or getting childcare or taking two buses in a cab or all the things, right? But Mm -hmm. I love that. The idea that you can't solve that problem until you understand what it's like to be in their shoes. So powerful. It flows into the next one, which is self-awareness, I think, which also relates to the, you know, the things we've talked about around just sort of martyrdom and stuff. But you have to be willing to admit that you might not know what the problem is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or that you might not have all the skills. I mean, Mm -hmm. you and I've talked about this on the podcast before that the skills you need as a lawyer are often different than the skills you need to have a successful business or to be a good manager, right? And there are things that that, that weren't taught in law school. There was no HR class in law school that taught (laughs) us how to communicate with our team members. And a lot of us learned by just watching other lawyers who honestly probably didn't practice the best examples. (laughs) One of the examples we give in the book around self-awareness is the fact that lots of the lawyers that we know, and I think I'm I'm willing to extrapolate that, um, don't have hobbies. You know, there there Mm -hmm. isn't, they don't have much of a life outside of work and what they can squeeze in of home life. Maybe I'm being a little unfair, but, you know, I think, like, what is it that makes you happy? What do you do just for enjoyment because it fulfills you that doesn't have to do anything to do with hourly billing, for example? Yeah, and the benefit that flows from that. I mean, a lot of high-performing business leaders take music classes Mm -hmm. on purpose, in part because I think they enjoy it. But they also recognize that that skill will translate into their business. Yeah, for sure. 
a lawyer who I think <laughs> exemplifies the opposite is Sarah Peterson, who came to LabCon. And the first day we went running, she came along with us. And the second day, we encountered her coming back from her run as we were leaving for our run. And we had a brief conversation about that later. And she was saying, yeah, I get up at 530 every morning because if I don't run, I can't be um, you know, it's just, it's a part of what I need to be healthy and present and active. And and actually that was a large reason that I started getting up at 5.30 was that very brief conversation that she's probably forgotten about. But I was like, well, shit, maybe, yeah, that that's right. Like, I think I need that too. I'm a better person when I am, you know, when I've run my exercise out, when I feel like I've given my dog the attention and exercise he needs. And yeah, I think it's really important to understand what motivates you, what makes you happy, what fulfills you, and make sure that it's not just what happens inside your office. Yeah. So next is adaptable. Mm -hmm. That one is pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? Yeah. I feel like it goes with all the others. <laughs> <laughs> you should figure out by now. We're gonna, I mean, we might need you to adapt. <laughs> like, I've used think. the word nimble in the past, but I think that's an advantage that solo and small firms really have over big firms is like if you need to change everything about the way you practice, you can. It can be hard and take a lot of time, but like you can adapt. And that, I think that's why small firms and solo practices have a lot of really important advantages as long as you're willing to do that. Yeah, we tell the story in the book of a firm that I worked with in lab and going through the strategic planning process, they realized that they weren't fulfilling their vision for their firm, mm -hmm. which is a pretty big aha moment, right? And then they were like, oh, we got we to gotta change things. And they did. And they completely redesigned their firm, who they serve, how they serve them, the team, everything around it in about six months time. Yeah. I mean, maybe, you know, give or take. That's pretty amazing to think that, you you know, that you have that ability. To, they put their minds to it and then they implemented it and started it down that path and they were fully committed and pretty awesome. So yeah, being able to change that way. I mean, a couple of other good examples of that is like Jenny Gersten Zhang, who's been on the podcast, realized that her website was getting a whole lot of traffic for, it was like a, a blog post that she had written about, I don't know, Maritime Lars. I, I don't know what it was. I can't remember, but it was like- It's about, I know. It's, it was like a regulatory to, matter or something. It's about when you want to transfer your, um when you're on parole and you want to transfer from gotcha. one state to the other, okay. there's a process you have to go through. So she wrote about that. And then she's like, yeah, I'm getting all these hits, you know? And I was like, <laughs> let's do something about that. Let's mm -hmm. monetize it. it was a and she adapted very quickly. You, you and she worked together to figure out a strategy for how she could take advantage of that without cutting into her day-to-day -day law practice work. Um, the other example I'm thinking of is Jess Birkin, who works with nonprofits. And at last year's LabCon, we stayed up late and talked through how we could, how she could design a subscription-based product for nonprofits so that they could make it a budget line item to work with her on an ongoing basis. And she kind of recognized that need, went through kind of an abbreviated design thinking process to come up with a way to do it. Then she tested it. It resonated with the people she was trying to serve. And, and she kind of built a new business model out of it, basically. And it's, it was pretty neat to see that happen. Yeah, love those. The last one, and we kind of put this intentionally last because we're kind of tired of people calling lawyerists a tech blog. <laughs> but the last item on the list is that you need to be tech enabled. That's kind of a no brainer in, in the world that we're in right now. But it's where a lot of lawyers get stuck. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons that we talk about tech so much is because it's a foundational thing. You know, your technology is something that you build on and it's hard until you've done it, right? Like until you're paperless, you can't use much data because you don't have much data in your system. And until you're mobile, you can't 
even contemplate things like remote working arrangements, you know? So it, like, it's this foundational thing, but it's hard because going back to the beginning, most lawyers don't have anyone whose job it is to work on their business and be their IT staff. So you do it yourself. And so it's hard. Yeah. So, you know, for the listeners out there that might be thinking, well, that that's all great. I'm glad these traits are important to you guys. <laughs> but what, what the heck do you do with it? Yeah. I mean, we're not going to have time today, but the good news is that, that kind of is laid out in part one of the book. And in part two of the book, we dive really deep. And that's really the roadmap part where we take these principles and these ideas and then give you step-by-step thoughts and approaches, I should say, because it's not really like step-by-step. It's But here's the approach you should take to start implementing these things into these different areas of your practice, be it strategy or client acquisition finances or staffing. And that's really the whole second part of the book. Yeah, it'd be pretty hard to try and summarize that whole thing in in here, which is why we're getting an audiobook made as well. <laughs> but, but we go through each of those things. And if you want to know what those things are, like go take the small firm scorecard. Like the small firm scorecard is the framework for the roadmap. And if you want to know how to get to a 10 on all of those things, then read the book and walk through part two and the chapters on personal goals and strategy, business strategy, clients services, etc. That's where we actually walk through how to do it. Megan Xavier said she really liked the quick wins. We included quick wins in each one because we know like staring at an entire chapter about, you know, your systems and procedures can seem really daunting. And so we tried to throw in quick wins so that you can feel like you've made progress on it really quickly. And you have, we, I mean, there's, there are absolutely quick wins that you can get on each one of these. And hopefully that will encourage you to, to do the harder work that comes with getting yourself to attend on that section of the scorecard. Yeah, I think that's a good reminder to people because I think it would, this is one of those books, like I keep coming back to it. And I think as people read it, they will too. Like you'll read it, you know, if you read it through, awesome, that's great. But it really is built, written as a resource. So as you start to work on this part of your practice, you can come back to that chapter and reread that and think through that content and implement it. And of course, if you need help, more help implementing, you know, we're here at the community standing by to do so. But I'm really excited about really just the depth of the content that we've been able to include in the book. And so don't be discouraged if you read it and you freak out. Um, I think we even say that at the end. Don't freak out. It's a lot. We get it. Yeah. I'm thinking of a couple of our lab members at LabCon this year, Jessica Charles and Lisa Gonzalez were both saying that, you know, their first time coming to TBD Law or LabCon, they felt kind of overwhelmed by realizing how much work that we were telling them they needed to do. But in the year or two between visits, they started doing the work and making real progress. And then when they come back to LabCon, they said, I'm understanding all of these things in different ways. And I think the book will be like that for people too. Yeah. Getting things done, the book Getting Things Done has been like that for me. I, I have gone back to read it a couple of times because as I work through my own systems and make progress towards my goals on productivity, I understand what the book is trying to tell me to do in different ways. And I'm, I'm really confident that our book is similar, that it will mean different things to you at different points on the roadmap, on your journey through the roadmap. So get the book. Duh. Yeah, it's available now. Yeah. And it's not an $80, you know, law book in the way that you will sometimes find in this industry. It's a normally priced business book, and we hope that makes it easier for you to take advantage of it. You can find it on Amazon. We'll include the link in the show notes. Stephanie, thanks for talking with me about the small firm roadmap. Um, it's exciting to see it out in the world and, um, I'm sure we'll talk about it more soon. Yeah. Hey Sam, thanks for writing a book with me. (laughs) Thanks for writing a book with me. Are you interested in implementing the ideas you've heard on today's podcast into your law firm? Could you use a little help? 
Hey guys, it's Stephanie, the VP of Community Success here at Lawyers, and I'd love to help you tackle your business or take it to the next level. Head over to go.lawyerist.com backslash start to sign up for a quick call with me, and let's talk about how Lawyerist can help you create your best law firm. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. 